as well. We began a series weeks ago called Masterclass, right? It's sort of, uh, sort of patterned after something that you see uh, out in the world. There's a series of uh, trainings talks called Masterclass. It's kind of like TED Talks. We're in short bite-sized segments. We get to learn about teachings about real life, things that would really make a difference in our lives. It occurred to me months and months and months ago that Jesus is the master teacher, and if we were going to have a master class, it would make sense to study his teachings. And so today, we're going to study one of them, one of the parables, in Matthew chapter 20, if you want to turn there. I'll be there uh, in a little bit. I promise you I'll get there. But before we get there, I, I guess I want to start in this place, that it's really as old as probably Cain and Abel. That one sibling watches how another sibling, thank you, how another sibling is treated, and they say to mom and dad, it's not, yeah, you know, because you've lived it. You know, because if you're a parent, you parented through it. You know, because if you're a grandparent, it really wasn't fair. It's just the way it is. Fair. Fair. You know, when we want to get even, we say turnabout is fair play. Somewhere in life, when we want to justify our own behavior, we say all is fair in love and war. We get old. And we say, I must be old. We say to our kids, who told you that life was fair? Where did this sense that everything is supposed to be fair, where did it come from? The fair, yes. That place where you get fried everything. Fried, fried pickles, Fried Twinkies, you name it. That's where the fair came from. I think you're right. You're onto something there, Craig. And how exactly would you define fair? Because something tells me that what you think is fair doesn't feel fair to your sibling, particularly. And whatever we think is fair can be subjective, it can be personal, it's often shaped by our own opinions. Today we're going to read a parable that is, my Bible says it's the parable of the workers in the vineyard. But I think we could call it the, the parable of the unfair reward. I'm going to go just slightly different direction. Our world has a tendency to not operate on fair, wouldn't you agree? Our, the flip side of that is that our world has a tendency to rank and reject people in certain ways. You're in if, and you're out if. The world ranks and rejects all the time based on a variety of kinds of, frankly, unfair standards. Like today, our world 2,000 years ago 
and for that matter, thousands of years before that, has always ranked and rejected people based on certain concepts. Look younger, you're in. You're rich, you're in. You know more than everybody else, you're in. You're a celebrity, you're in. You're cool. Whatever that is, you're in. In many cultures, you would get a sense that if you're one of us, you're in. Of course, the implication is, if you're not one of these things, you're out. Even in Jesus' day, they had a tendency to look at their world and the world of heaven and think that God would rank and reject the way we do. And so common thinking in Jesus' day was that if you were the riffraff, you were out. If you were the rejects, you were out. If you were an outcast, you were out. If you were just a scrawny little kid, you're out. But if you're important, you're in. After all, God has blessed your life and put you in a place where you're important. If you're rich, you're in. Because after all, God had put you in a place where you were blessed. This was the world of Jesus. You know, I often say that I'm not a very religious person. And you guys look at me and go, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. But for those outside our faith, they look at me and go, what do you mean you're not religious? You're a pastor. Of course you're religious. Why do I say that? I say that I'm into a relationship with Jesus, but I'm not a very religious guy. In church, there's always the possibility that we get enough of it to become religious and not enough of it to really understand Jesus. At Harvest, we strive to be a safe place. We say this verbally. We say it on our website. We say it outgoingly, that we strive to be a place where people who aren't religious are safe to be. That, that, that we're a safe place for people who are not religious. And of course, our culture tends to take it a step further. Our culture tends to say, I, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Interestingly, they weren't that different in Jesus' day. There were lots of religious folks Lots of religious teachers. Lots of folks who thought they were in and they got to decide who was out. If I were a thousand percent honest with you, is a thousand percent any different than a hundred percent? Sounds stronger, but I think... I, if I were a thousand percent honest with you, I would have to admit that in churches today... Across America, 
There's a lot of religion that says we're in and this group of people are out. My question is, where's Jesus on all of that? I'm going to read in Matthew 20, but I actually want to highlight a couple of things for you just before that so we know where we're at. Matthew 20, we're very near the time when Jesus is going to go to the cross. He is making his way to Jerusalem where he will die on a cross, and he knows it. But in Matthew 18, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And by the way, the disciples loved to argue about stuff like that, primarily thinking that they were now the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus called a little child to him, placed the child among them, and said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that was an upside down, first shall be last, last shall be first way of thinking. Because to them, the kids didn't know enough. The kids weren't, the, the, the kids were the, especially the religious types, they were the riffraff of society. They hadn't grown up yet. I'm not saying I agree with that. I'm saying that's how they looked at it. And so not very long later, Matthew 19, people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. And you would think since chapter 18 had him saying that, you know, you had to be like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven, that when 19, right, because I don't know if you know this, but 19 comes right after. <laughs> yes. And, and you know that every time Jesus did something, some scribe up there said, chapter 18. And then Jesus did, it didn't work like that, right? Well, we have it recorded for us in chapters, but this is not how it went down. But sequentially, the timeline is not that different. People brought their kids to Jesus to have him place his hands on them. Some of them might have heard that Jesus said that you need to be like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they wanted Jesus to make sure their kids entered the kingdom of heaven. And they bring their kids and... The disciples rebuked them. Strong language. The teacher doesn't have time for the riffraff. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, the, ch the children, the kids. Right after that, a man comes to Jesus and says, teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who's good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, the guy said. Jesus said, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony. You know those. Those are part of the big, the big ten. Not the American big ten, by the way. The man said, I've kept all these. What do I still lack? Jesus said, hey, go, sell all your possessions Give them to the poor and come and follow me. And the man walked away. 
Jesus said, I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this turns it all upside down. Because in their minds, the disciples particularly, hello, they have God's blessing on their side already. Surely they're in, God likes them, that's why they're rich. The disciples heard this, they were astonished, and they asked, who then can be saved? I mean, if the rich aren't in, then who is? And Jesus gives them this great statement, and I'm not going to read it all because, because really my text is Matthew 20, but this sets it up. The end of chapter 19, Jesus said, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be... He's telling them that the kingdom is, that God's way of seeing things is different than their way of saying things. And then he tells them this parable. Chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. So you need to know that the word workers there is, is a word for basically day laborers. And these were, by their work standards, their way of judging things. Again, this is not my heart. This is the way the world would have seen them then. They were the bottom of the work society because they were day laborers. They had no ongoing employment. They had no one who was providing for their needs. And there was no one who was under obligation to take care of them. They would have been people, frankly, who were considered in that day out. kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers, day laborers, for his vineyard, and he agreed to pay them a denarius, that's a day's wage, for the day, and sent them into his vineyard. And about nine in the morning he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I'll pay you whatever is right. We might say, whatever is so they went, and he went out again about noon, and about three in the afternoon, he did the same thing, and about five in the afternoon, he went out, and he found still others standing around. So five is the end of the day, right? And their work day, they got about an hour left in the day of work. Why are you standing? How have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? They say, because no one has hired us. Doesn't that seem obvious? I thought you were like some brilliant dude, but... Like, we're here because no one wanted us. So again, thinking about ranking and rejecting, this is a group of people who, when the hiring managers went out and said, I'll take you and you, they took the big and the strong. And then when others showed up and said, I'll take you and you, and they, they said, those guys look like they'll work for me, and they took you and you. Who, this is like picking kickball in fifth grade. And you're the last kids picked. Does that make sense? Were you ever the last kid picked? 
These are the guys that weren't very fast, weren't very strong. No one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also, 5 p.m., you also go and work in my vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. And the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius, a day's wage. Now, just pause there a second. You're the guys who worked all day long. And you watch the guys who showed up at 5 o'clock, lollygagged all day long in your mind, showed up at 5, put in a solid 30 minutes worth of work, and they got paid a day's wage. What are you thinking? You're thinking, I'm going to get paid more than a day's wage. If they got paid a day's wage for their <clears throat> hour of work, then us who worked all day long, certainly we deserve more. In fact, they're multiplying it out. Man, am I going to get like 10 days wages, 12 days wages? What am I going to get here? Like this could have been a really good day. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius, a day's wage. Now, remember, when Jesus hired them, or Jesus, <laughs> when the landowner or the foreman who worked for him hired them, they agreed to work for a day's wage. They worked for a day's wage. They got paid a day's wage. They got paid what they agreed to work for. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you made them equal to us who borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you being envious because I am generous? So the last will be first. And the first will be last. Quite honestly, the parable is a little confusing. Primarily because we have to admit they seem to have a point. It's not fair. Fair would say, guy works an hour, gets a day's wage. Guy who worked all day should at least get double that, if not a whole lot more. Or you don't have to pay us more. You just have to pay him less. Because that would be fair. Exactly. It's not fair. It wasn't. 
And if we were alive then and we were one of those day laborers, I'm confident we would make the same argument. It's not fair. Jesus exposes our tendency to want work and life and religion to be fair. You know, at some level, this parable is about human nature and our understanding of how we think God should treat us. But if I really want instant justice in my life, if I really want fair in my life, let's be clear about what we mean about fair. I would want all of the reward of fair, and I would want none of the punishment of fair. Wouldn't you say that's true of you? When it was you and your siblings, it's not fair sometimes meant your sibling got rewarded, and it's not fair also sometimes meant you got punished. And it wasn't, yeah. Human nature says, I want fair, and it's so subjective. Because fair to me means I get everything I deserve in the good sense. But if we're honest, fair also means I really don't want what I deserve in the negative sense. So I'm going to make my point in just a second, but I, I just got to ask a totally random question. It's 100% random. Wherever you grew up, if you went to a zoo, I told you, totally random. Wherever you grew up, if you went to a zoo back in the 70s and 80s, which leaves some of you out, I, I realize, I apologize. But if you went to a zoo in the 70s or 80s, wherever you grew up, did you guys have moldorama? The smell of plastic being molded right in front of you into the shape of an animal. Craig, do we have a couple of pictures of this? Did you guys have this no. back in the day? You have any clue what I'm talking about? No. All right, so we got another one. Okay, so, all right, so when I was a kid, you go to the zoo, and I just didn't know if this was everywhere, if this was, you know, my local zoo. But we had Moldorama, and you knew when you got to the machine, it looked like this, and you'd put your quarter in or your dollar in, or today it'd probably be like 10 bucks, you know, <laughs> right? And if they had Moldorama at Disney, you'd get a princess, and, and it would probably be like 100 bucks, quite honestly. But, <laughs> but you go to the zoo back in the day, and the smell of molded plastic was everywhere in the zoo because every like fourth animal or so was this machine that you could put money in and it would mold one of those, an elephant or a gorilla or a lion. And you could, those of you who had Moldorama, you know the smell I'm talking about? Like I can smell it now just talking about it. Where you could, not personally, but you could mold that animal you were looking at. Now you had something to carry with you all day and take home. And if you're really cool, your parents gave you the quarter or the dollar. So you'd have like, you know, four or five of these things to carry with you, which means you didn't carry it. Who carried it? Right? Right? Which just reminds you as parents, everywhere you go with kids, you always have to have a bag for the kid's stuff. But Moldorama. Moldorama. 
Here's the point I want to make. When it comes to religion, the path of religion inevitably attempts to mold God in my image. Whereas the path of grace, sorry, I think we're missing a word there. The path of grace molds my heart in the image of Jesus. Here's what I'm getting at. Jesus is drawing a clear distinction about who's in and out of the kingdom of heaven. And he is saying that the first will be last and the last will be first. And all the people they thought naturally would be in are the ones he's calling last. And the people they thought would be out, he's saying, are first. And they're confused. And so he tells them this parable about what is fair and not fair. And Jesus is making the point that religion is not the point. And I'm going to go back through it, and I'm going to show you, because I'm going to contrast religion and grace greatly today. But the first contrast I really want you to see is that the path of religion inevitably attempts to mold God in my image, while the path of grace actually works to mold my heart in the image of Jesus. You remember when Jesus was teaching, this would have been uh, months and months and months and really a few years before this moment we're reading. And he said, when we pray, we're to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? That part of our mandate is to pray for the will of heaven to become the will of earth. The upside down will of heaven to become the will of earth. that we're to work to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. But it strikes me that we often work to bring the kingdom of earth to heaven. That we often try to make sure heaven assumes our priorities. To try to get heaven onto our game, our side of it. Right? I mean, this is as simple is every Tennessee fan who prayed, please, 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 please at that end of that game yesterday, thinking if God would just let us win the game here, right? There's a whole lot of people should be in church this morning because they promised God a lot of things yesterday. I use a sports analogy because I think that seems silly that we would want God to be on our team's side. Careful. Seems silly to think that we would want God to be on our team's side. Our team who's in. Seems silly. Don't we do it? (laughs) In business and in politics and in education. Don't we try to get God onto, or we don't even try to get God, we just assume God is on our side. You know what we're doing, we're playing Moldorama with God. I'm molding God in my image. And I say this all the time, I'm an equal opportunity offender, so I'm just going to say it. We mold God in the image of what a Democrat looks like, or we mold God in the image of what a Republican looks like, and say this is God. 
Never mind the fact that those are both very American ways of looking at things, which is a way of saying that Americans mold God in the American image. You know, you go to Moldorama at the zoo and you get George Washington God, right? It would Ben Franklin God. That he would look like either you or your heroes. Religion inevitably attempts to mold God in my image, but grace, which is really the point of the parable, even though the word doesn't show up, but the word generous does show up, is based on what absolutely isn't fair. But it's grace that actually molds my heart in the image of Jesus. So let me give you a truth real quick that most of us, many of us, don't like. Heart transformation really happens when grace transforms the hidden places of pride in my heart. That's when life really begins to change. Heart transformation happens when grace transforms the hidden places of pride in my heart. When, when some pride in me begins to well up and grace begins to intersect that and I begin to think, you know what, I, uh, 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 I, I, uh, I thought I deserved, but now I realize I don't deserve. See how, see how that works? Because, because as long as I think we're working on a basis of what I'm owed or what I deserve, we're in the realm of religion. We're in the realm of fair. But when I say, hmm, turns out I don't have good justification to be prideful, and there's nothing I actually do. Actually, what I deserve, frankly, is punishment at some level. Justice and what I've been given is generous, that begins to transform my heart because my heart begins to say, I don't deserve it and God gave it to me anyway, which means when I interact with other people, I should treat them not on the basis of what they deserve, but on the basis of who Christ says they are, on the basis of how Christ has already treated them. This is how Grace begins to transform my heart. So I, I want to very quickly just give you four more uh, indicators that I'm slipping into religion and missing grace. Or, or four distinctions between religion and grace. Or, or maybe four signs that I'm not paying attention to a relationship with Jesus, that I'm paying more attention to religion. Because I think it's important we understand the distinction. I'll give you four. Four indicators. Number one, the path of religion thinks that God owes me something, while the path of grace knows that I owe everything to Jesus, to God. The path of religion thinks that God owes me something, while the path of grace knows that I owe everything to Jesus because of that cross. Do I deserve a, a Jesus who died for my sins? Absolutely not. But you know, the religious leaders back in the day thought they were owed something. Look at me, I'm, I'm so good. You ever met Christians that are like that? Sure you have. Now, we try not to be that kind of place around here at Harvest. 
But it's very, very easy for pride to work its way into our heart. And frankly, pride is at the root of a lot of religion. Where we, where we say, I deserve. God owes. Verse 10. <laughs> so when those came who were hired first... They expected to receive more, right? Talking about the people who worked all day long. They, they thought, I, I deserve more than the people who got a day's wage for doing none of the work, basically. God owes me. Jesus doesn't owe me anything. But grace says he gave his life for me in spite of what I'm owed. In fact, really, the transformation here is that Jesus took the punishment I'm owed and gives me all the blessing, frankly, that I haven't earned. All the kindness, all the generosity, all the love that I haven't really earned. Number two, the path of religion produces a lot of grumbling. The path of grace produces a lot of gratitude, right? Grumbling, gratitude. If you ever find yourself grumbling about those people, it's a pretty good indicator. I've slipped into religion and that I'm missing something about grace. Verse 11 said, when they received it, they began to, the denarius, that, that they were, you know, promised for the day's wage and they worked the day and they got the day's wage it says they began to grumble against the landowner right it was all that unfair business grumble you know there are a lot of attitudes that tend to show up when religion is really the thing you see comparisons show up a lot right i'm better than them you see entitlement show up a lot that i'm owed something you see grumbling show up a lot. You even see sneering show up a lot. Where, where you know, you look down your nose at someone, you just, you just... But frankly, God's goal is that I'm molded in the image of Jesus. And that image of Jesus... It's going to mean more humility in my life, more generosity in my life, more servanthood in my life. Those are all rooted in grace. Number three, the path of religion makes me the standard of what feels fair. While the path of grace understands that Jesus is the standard. And frankly, he's better than fair. He's better than fair. Because if life really worked unfair, we'd all stand at the pearly gates and look at who got in and we'd scream, it's not fair. And if we ever find ourselves in when we don't deserve it, someone else would scream, probably our sibling, it's not fair. 
And I believe Jesus would say, you're right. It's not fair. It's way better than fair. It's grace. It's God allowing and giving what I absolutely do not deserve. One last thing, number four. The path of religion misunderstands the assignment. And I sort of mean this in the context of what we talked about last Sunday. If you missed last Sunday, go back online and, and watch. It, it, it's worth hearing. So many times, so often we misunderstand the assignment. The, the path of religion misunderstands the assignment, while the path of grace understands that life is all about loving and serving other people who absolutely do not deserve it absolutely do not deserve it. I mean, think about it. If I'm going to be molded in the image of Jesus and my heart's going to become like Jesus, doesn't it make sense that I'm going to treat people the way Jesus treated people? What if they don't root for my team? What if they're the polar opposite of me? path of religion misunderstands the assignment because religion will gather people together and say, we're the cool people. In God's eyes, we're cool. No. No, no, no. Religion gathers groups of people, and religion says, thank God that we're so in, and they're so out. By the way, religion just doesn't, sh doesn't always just show up in religious places, right? It's, it's not just the religion of Islam, the religion of Hinduism, the religion of Christianity, the religion. I'm not, I'm not just talking about those kinds of religion. People are very religious about their sports. They're very religious about their politics. They're very religious about their nationalism. Their nationalism? Am I saying... Let me say it this way. If there are some things in my heart that are so important to me, they're so close to my heart that they dictate my entire worldview. how I see other people, how I interpret other people, the benefit of the doubt I do or don't give to other people, the way I treat other people. Whatever that is that's so near and dear to my heart, that's probably my religion. And <laughs> let's be honest. It's easier for our human ways of thinking to be closer to our hearts than the grace of Jesus actually is.
and I don't want you to miss grace. The grace truly transforms my heart when it becomes the thing closest to my heart. And when grace is closest to my heart, I realize I can't treat people the human way or the religious way. This were not empty words, by the way. The very next verse from where we ended, verse 17 says, Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and on the way he took the twelve aside, and he said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem. They said up because Jerusalem sat top of a hill. You, you always went up from Jerusalem, then when you went away, you went down from Jerusalem. Right? It's, it's why they talk about the Temple Mount, right? The, the Mount, that the, there's a sense in which Jerusalem was the holy hill. We're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the super-religious. And they will condemn him to death. And he, they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he'll be raised to life. And in the very next verse, James and John's mom comes and says, Give me whatever I ask of you, right? Make my sons the next best, the greatest in your kingdom. I think they put mom up to that. It's a pretty good, you can be close to Jesus and miss the point. You see what I'm saying? And I don't know about you, but I need my heart fully transformed by grace. And at the end of the day, I have no means to stand before God and say, yeah, look at me and what I've done, you owe me. I only have the grace of Jesus to fall on. That grace I absolutely do not deserve. That grace that absolutely is not fair. It's better than fair. And so it's that grace that I need to change my life and change my heart. Make sense? So here's how we're going to end today. I always end with two prayers, and we're going we're gonna to pray them. But we're going to pray them in the context of the Lord's Supper, right? You know, you know the story, right? On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and broke it. And when he given thanks, that's when he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread, whenever you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I'm going to pray a prayer of salvation right now. If you need Jesus today, you can receive him today, right here, right now. And then after that prayer, we're going to pass these elements. And, well, I'll explain it then. Let's pray the prayer of salvation. If you need Jesus today, I, I hope you'll pray for grace with me. Say, Jesus, I don't deserve you, but I need you. And there is no O here. If there's anything, I owe you everything. So Jesus, please forgive my sin. Thank you that you died on that cross for me. Please take over my life. Accept me. Forgive me. Change me. Make me like you, Jesus. I turn to you. Not on the basis of what I deserve, 
but purely on the basis of grace. In Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer with me today online or here in the room, man, that's, that's the most amazing thing ever. It's the most important decision I ever made in my life. It's changed everything about me. It will about you too. But man, we'd love to celebrate that. In fact, in a couple of weeks, October 30th, we're going to celebrate baptism. And if you're interested in being baptized that day, Baptism, by the way, is not the thing that saves us. It's, it's the identifying with Jesus. It's the public telling of our faith that says, I identify with his death and his burial and his resurrection. And that's why we baptize in water the way we do. Christians have for thousands of years. If that's you, man, I'd love to know it. Will you tell me today? Communication card or, or whichever. We're going to pass out these elements. And as we pass them, I want you to take notice that there are two cups in each spot here. And if a little bit of juice spills out, I don't want you to fret. Jesus' blood was spilled for us. But I want you to take, again, there's two cups in one. I got to make sure that you know what I'm talking about. Two cups. Top cup has the juice, bottom cup has the cracker. All right? Take them both, because we're going to take them together. All right? Mark, would you help me out? Casey, would you help me out? Here, I'm going to take one, too. Thank you. You know, this, this thing Christians do where we take the, the bread, the, the, the cracker, the, the thing that represents the, the body broken for us. And, and I should mention, we've had a few requests for a gluten-free version. These are all gluten-free today. <laughs> just, just saying. I want nothing to hinder. You're saying, this is not the religious thing that saves us either. This is the worship of Jesus. If this means something to you, then I would invite you to take it. And if it doesn't mean something to you, I'd invite you to not. It's okay to not. It's okay to let it pass. The body of Jesus broken for us is nothing but grace. And the blood of Jesus spilled for us It's nothing but grace. Just pure grace. I am not owed this. I do not deserve this. None of this is religion. It's just grace. I wonder if you might pray this prayer of application with me. Dear Jesus, 
I know I don't deserve this. I don't deserve my relationship with you. I don't deserve any of the grace and kindness you send my way. You do have the right to do what you want. And what you wanted was to be generous and gracious to me. And so thank you that you love me anyway. Mold my heart like yours. Transform the hidden pride in my heart. Make me full of grace, full of gratitude, full of generosity like you. Help me to love and serve others the way you do. Not on the basis of deserve, but on the basis of grace. Thank you again for grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. I am thankful, are you? back in the back we have baskets for the communication cards if you're a guest today please don't feel any obligation to give for those of us consider harvest like this is our church this is our home there's a giving box you can give online as well that grace really is amazing isn't it